Does Monday at the office feel like a storm? Not with Microsoft Copilot. That feeling when Copilot gets everyone up to speed instantly? It's sunny again. When Copilot simplifies complex data so your teams can act, that sun's shining on a beach. And when Copilot uncovers hidden insights, you're on that beach with your people and you find buried treasure. That's Microsoft Copilot. Learn more at Microsoft.com slash AI for all. One day, more than 3,000 years ago, a man was working in the hills above a city. East of Arket Artin, the horizon of Artin, a line of cliffs created a wall around the city. Here, dug into the hillside, artisans prepared the tombs and chapels of high-ranking officials. Pharaoh's agents, his representatives, were permitted to make their eternal houses in the cliffs overlooking Arket Artin. These cliffs were limestone, soft but strong, and perfect for quarrying into blocks or making tombs. It was in one of these tombs that a lone artisan was working, carving a scene for the tomb's decoration. The scene in question was simple. On the left, the tomb's owner appeared with arms raised high, receiving the adulation of his peers. On the right, he showed a royal palace, perhaps the building we call the North Palace. At the top of the scene, the Artin, as always, shone over the tomb owner, the palace, and the figures in the centre. These figures, larger than everyone else, were the focus of the artist's attention. They were royalty, a king and queen, appearing to give the tomb owner his rewards. With delicate skill, the artisan carved the pleats of their robes, the shape of their crowns, and the flesh of their bodies. Above, the rays of Arten caressed the royal couple, holding the ankh, life, to their noses. It was a standard scene, barely out of the ordinary. Soon, though, the artist began to work on the cartouches. The hieroglyphic texts accompanying the scene would convey the sense of its meaning. They would record the names of Arten high above, and of the royal couple. Normally, the artisan would fill the cartouches with the names of Akhenaten and Nefertiti, the pharaoh and his queen. This time, though, the artist began to carve different glyphs. Carefully, he filled the cartouches with a new set of names. On the right, one cartouche held the name Merit Aten. The eldest daughter of Pharaoh, Merit Aten, was one half of the pair depicted in this scene. Fair enough, Merit Aten had appeared in many scenes over the years. But this time it was different. The princess's name was now in a cartouche, indicating authority, queenship. Apparently, Merit Aten had got a promotion. Was she assisting her father, Akhenaten, as a kind of new queen for the country? Well, not quite. Besides the cartouche of Merit Aten, the artist now carved an additional set of glyphs. The new text, attached to the male figure in the scene, recorded a different name from that of Egypt's pharaoh. This was not Akhenaten, this was someone else, a second king ruling at the same time alongside the pharaoh. Carefully, the artisan filled in the name, a sun disk, a chisel, a pair of upraised arms, a scarab, and a few more assorted glyphs completed the text. When he was done, the artist blew away the dust and stepped back to admire his work. The name was clear, Smenk Ka Re, King of Egypt. 
co-ruler to Akhenaten. What was going on? The year was 1350 BCE, regnal year 13 in the reign of Neferkeperura Wa Enra, Akhenaten, the king of Egypt. Dark days were upon the royal household. Ti, the pharaoh's mother, was dead, and in her wake many more would follow. With his mother gone, Akhenaten grieved, but his losses were not over. Soon after T passed to the west, the royal family would suffer another tragedy. This time, death came for the pharaoh's child. The princess Meket-Aten was the next person to die. Meket-Aten was the second eldest daughter of the king and queen, slightly younger than Merit-Aten. By regnal year 13, Meket-Aten was approximately eight or nine years old and she had been a noteworthy figure in royal art and propaganda. Although she did not gain the same political prominence as Merit Aten, Meket Aten still enjoyed a comfortable life in the palace, until it was cut short. Around 1350 BCE, give or take, Meket Aten died not long after her grandmother T. And like Queen T, Meket Aten would receive a special honour. Her burial was placed within the royal tomb east of the city of Arket Aten. Here, in a monument dedicated to Akhenaten himself, we find the evidence for Meket Aten's death. Originally, the tomb was a single long corridor descending into the rock, but at some point Akhenaten decided to add more rooms. A suite of chambers now branched off from the main corridor. There were three of them, oriented towards the northeast, and the walls of these chambers depicted various scenes of life and worship in the royal city. And among these images, we also see Meket Aten's funeral. Three artistic scenes in the royal tomb depict the death of a princess. We see Meket Aten lying on a bed, surrounded by mourners. To her left, the princess's attendants kneel on the ground, raising their hands in despair. To her right, Meket Aten's parents, Akhenaten and Nefertiti, grieve for the loss of their daughter. The king and queen hold their hands to their heads, apparently weeping at the tragedy before them. Behind the royal couple, a hieroglyphic caption reads, quote, The king's daughter of his body, his beloved Meket Aten, born of the great king's wife Nefertiti, may she live for ever and ever. End quote. So, the dead princess was Meket Aten, cut down at just eight or nine years old. The death must have been a great loss, a moment of terrible grief for a girl gone too soon. A scene like this, depicting the royal family in the act of mourning, is quite unusual. Another example of the art of this period showing things that we don't normally see. Even with Queen T, we only got images of the lady after she had died, acts of worship by Akhenaten to the memory of his mother. But now, for Meket Aten, we see the mourning happening before our eyes. It's a curious depiction, and one that is not common at all. 
The rest of the scene shows a host of men and women who come to mourn the princess. Each person grieves differently, and the artists have tried to capture small details. In one part, we even see a woman trying to rush forward towards Meket Aten's bed, but another person has to restrain her physically. It's a lovely touch in an otherwise sad scene. The mummy of Meket Aten is lost, but archaeologists clearing the royal tomb found pieces of her sarcophagus. Her container was made of granite, like Queen T's, and also like T, Meket Aten's sarcophagus was decorated with inscriptions, testifying to her burial and her hope for eternal life. However, the princess's container did not have the elaborate pictures that we see for Queen T. Instead, Meket Aten went to her rest in a mostly plain box, just a few lines of hieroglyphs to accompany her. Why the disparity? Why does T get elaborate scenes, but the princess gets nothing? The answer is probably practical and sad. T, the elder lady, almost certainly commissioned her sarcophagus years in advance. Nearing 60, the Queen Mother must have known she would leave sooner rather than later. Meket Aten, meanwhile, died unexpectedly. There was no reason to plan a sarcophagus at such a young age. Sadly, the eight-year-old had to make do with what was available, a plain granite box hastily inscribed with her names. So the difference is practical, the mark of a life cut unexpectedly short. Meket Aten died in mysterious circumstances. The hieroglyphics in the royal tomb do not mention the cause of her death, and we have to guess from external context. Personally, I think she was probably a victim of illness. But I should mention an alternative explanation that was kicking around for a long time. For many years, scholars thought Meket Aten might have died in childbirth. You see, in the artistic scene of her funeral, we have a curious situation. To the right of the deathbed and the figures of Akhenaten and Nefertiti, we see the distinct figure of a baby. A small child rests in the arms of a nurse, who breastfeeds the infant while fan-bearers keep the pair cool. The child, like most Egyptian children, appears as a kind of adult but miniature. Amidst the grief and the mourning, this little baby appears to have just entered the world. Which poses a big question. Is it a real baby, or is it symbolic? If it is real, who is the father? And if it's symbolic, what does it mean? I'll spare you the lengthy debate and cut to the chase. The baby is probably symbolic, not a literal image of a child. Although it appears in the scene, this baby does not necessarily refer to the death of Meket Aten. For one thing, the girl was probably about eight or nine when she died. For another, ancient taboos and superstitions mean that the Egyptians never recorded the cause of death in art or hieroglyphics. Images were eternal. If you depicted something, it would happen forever. So, showing a cause of death was a bad idea. It encouraged that death to happen over and over again in the afterlife. So, depicting a baby does not necessarily mean death by childbirth. If it did, it would be an extreme departure from conventional practice. So, what's the deal with the baby? The other interpretation for this scene is that the baby depicts Meket Aten. 
The child, cradled by her nurse, might be an image of the princess reborn into the world. That may sound strange, so let me explain. For a long time, historians struggled to resolve the scene and its meaning. Some took it literally, suggesting the baby belonged to Meket Aten. Others viewed it as symbolic. But there was no consensus because no one could figure out who the baby was. The hieroglyphic captions which were next to the baby were so damaged that nobody could read them. Reconstructing that was the key to solving the problem. In the early 2000s, two scholars working independently of one another arrived at a similar conclusion. Egyptologists John Harris and Jacobus van Dyck both re-examined this scene and did their best to reconstruct the hieroglyphs that originally appeared with the baby. Even though the hieroglyphs were damaged and totally unreadable, scholars have a method for dealing with this problem. If a text is damaged but originally located within a defined artistic context, there is a way to figure out what is missing. One method is to measure the space where the text originally appeared, and then determine which glyphs could reasonably fit within that space. Then, Egyptologists can compare the available space with the sort of texts or captions that they know from other surviving inscriptions. Ancient Egyptian art tends to repeat itself. The hieroglyphics which accompany a pharaoh or a queen or a princess tend to show the same sort of texts over and over again. So if you know the original context for a lost inscription, and you can measure the space where it appeared, there's a reasonably good chance of reconstructing the text. Following this method, Harris and Van Dyck both proposed solutions for the caption accompanying the baby. According to Van Dyck, the baby's identity was as follows. Quote, The king's daughter, of his body, his beloved, Meket Aten, born of the king's great wife, his beloved, Nefer Neferu Aten Nefertiti, given life forever and ever. End quote. Apparently, the woman on the deathbed and the baby in the arms of a nurse are the same person. Meket Aten, daughter of the king and queen, is shown reborn amid her own funeral. A kind of resurrection at the very moment of death. Which may sound strange, but it does have some logic behind it. Compared to the traditional beliefs of ancient Egyptians, Akhenaten's views of death are quite murky. We don't know much about his opinion on the afterlife, or how he dealt with the transition from this world to whatever comes after. Based on references in the hymns of Aten, it seems like Akhenaten imagined the dead hanging around on the earth. When the sun was shining, spirits of the dead would emerge from their burial chambers to live within their tomb. At night, when the sun went away, the dead, like the living, would go to sleep once again. Which means that for Akhenaten, the old idea of rebirth in the afterlife might have been closer to rebirth in this life. The image of Meket Aten as a baby beside her own deathbed may reflect this idea. That got a little bit complicated, so let me summarize it. Basically, Meket Aten died around year 12 or 13, not long after her grandmother T. The princess was laid to rest in a suite of chambers attached to the royal tomb. There, 
the princess lay within a granite sarcophagus, hastily prepared, and bearing only a small band of hieroglyphs to record her existence. Around her container, Meket Aten's tomb showed family and servants mourning, and included a wish for the princess's rebirth. A baby, in the arms of a nurse, conveyed the idea that Meket Aten's body was gone, but her spirit remained on earth. Thus, in the darkness of its crypt, the princess went to her rest, but every day her spirit would wake to receive its offerings and bathe in Aten's life. Together with her grandmother, Meket Aten now lived in the royal tomb, her new house of eternity. The death of Meket Aten must have seemed like an ominous event. When T died, it was a loss, but one that could be anticipated given the elder lady's age. Meket Aten, though, was just eight or nine years old, not much younger than the pharaoh's eldest daughter, Merit Aten, and much older than the prince, Tutank Aten. In other words, Meket Aten's death highlighted how vulnerable the next generation was. And whether Akhenaten acknowledged that threat directly, it does seem he made plans for it. Soon after the death of Meket Aten, Pharaoh began to prepare a contingency. To ensure the continued stability of the royal household, and perhaps ensure that his ideas would endure, Akhenaten appointed a co-ruler. Egypt would get a new king, a second king, one who would rule alongside the pharaoh and help maintain stability. To put it lightly, this new king is rather mysterious. In chapter 2, we dive deep into the evidence for Akhenaten's co-ruler, the elusive figure known as Smenkkare. That is after the break. See you in a moment. Hey there, I'm Dylan Lewis, one of the hosts of Motley Fool Money. Each weekday on Motley Fool Money, we talk through the business news you need to know and the stories moving stocks on Wall Street. On weekends, we dive into the industries shaping tomorrow and host the experts, authors, and executives that understand them. Tune in for insights, a long-term perspective on investing, and of course, stock ideas, plenty of them. To quote a listener, it pays to listen. Check us out and subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. The year was approximately 1350 BCE, regnal year 13 of Akhenaten. Maybe. We actually have no idea of the chronology for this period. Historians have done their best to reconstruct these events, but as we will see, the evidence is so fragmentary that nothing about it is certain. With that in mind, here is a tentative story of what might have happened in the later years of Akhenaten. In 1350 BCE, Pharaoh and his family were in mourning. Two women, the Queen Mother T and the King's daughter Meket Aten, were dead. It is possible the ladies died of plague, a pestilence that came to Egypt from distant lands. We can't say for sure, but it is reasonably likely that the plague arrived when Akhenaten hosted his grand festival of tribute. 
Delegations and officials from Egypt's northern empire had flocked to the capital, and if countries like Lebanon and Cyprus were suffering an outbreak, then that disease may have reached Arket Artin. People, rich and poor, began to sicken, and two members of Akhenaten's family died soon after. Of course, this disease was not limited to the royals. In the next episode, we will meet the ordinary men and women who also suffered from these problems. For now, let us stay in the palace and see how Akhenaten dealt with a developing crisis. We opened this episode with an artist carving scenes in a small tomb. We should now visit this tomb and see what it actually tells us. In the hills above Arket Aten, modern Amana, a small tomb holds the burial place of a royal official. His name was Meri Rei, the second Meri Rei that we know from Amana. And in his tomb, this Meri Rei II commissioned an artistic scene relating to his career. This carving is fascinating. One wall of the tomb shows a king and queen who appear together dispensing gifts to Meri Rei. The king wears a blue crown, the queen wears a Nubian wig. And at first glance, you might think this was Akhenaten and one of his wives, someone like Nefertiti or Kia. But the cartouches reveal something else. The names of these people are as follows. Quote, the king of Upper and Lower Egypt, Ankh-Keperu Ra, the son of Ra, Smenkhkare, Jesser Keperu, and the great king's wife, Merit Aten. End quote. The newcomer was a man named Smenkhkare, or one whom Ra's spirit, or Ka, has made potent. He also had the name Jesser Keperu, or Sacred of Manifestations. His wife was named Merit Aten, a.k.a. the eldest daughter of the pharaoh. What was happening exactly? Sometime around Regnal year 13, maybe later, Akhenaten decided that he needed a co-ruler. His motivations are unclear, but it may have something to do with the deaths of Queen T and Meket Aten. Perhaps the loss of two royal women in quick succession scared the king. Mortality was knocking at the door, so to speak. And in that kind of environment, perhaps the pharaoh wanted some insurance. His solution was Smenkare. Smenkare is a frustrating figure. We know far less about him than we need to know, and even basic questions like where did he come from, or how long did he rule, are complete blanks. Artistic scenes and hieroglyphic texts only refer to Smenkare after he became a king and they present a formal, idealized vision of this ruler. There is no biographical information, just a couple of cartouches and pictures. Which leaves historians with a tiny amount of evidence, considering how prominent this young man became. As a result, all reconstructions, all narrative histories, are completely tentative. We will do our best, but keep this in mind. Smenkare shows up out of nowhere, but there is a decent chance he was a younger brother of the pharaoh. We haven't heard about him before, but that is relatively normal. In the 18th dynasty, princes were almost invisible in the artistic record until they became a king. The propaganda and texts mostly ignored princes unless they were filling a specific role, like a priest. Heck, even Akhenaten was mostly unknown until just before his accession. So, it is possible that Smenkare was a brother, or half-brother, of Akhenaten, 
another invisible son of Amun-hotep III. On the other hand, none of the monuments left for this king mention the title king's son, Sa-Nesut. So it is also possible he was a cousin of Akhenaten, part of the extended royal family. That is speculative. Smenka Rey has left so few records that it is possible the king's son title is simply lost. Maybe it will show up on a future artifact, and we will have to rewrite our history entirely. For now, all we can say for sure is that Smenkare pops up out of nowhere and suddenly becomes a new king. Whether he was Akhenaten's brother, his cousin, an in-law, or something else, Smenkare must have been close to the pharaoh to become his junior partner. Another interpretation is that Smenkare might have been Akhenaten's lover. This is an older hypothesis based on seal impressions that mention, quote, Ankh-Keperu-Ra, beloved of Nefer-Keperu-Ra, end quote. In other words, they mention Smenkare, by his throne name, as the beloved of Akhenaten. For some observers, particularly back in the day, this suggested that Smenkare was the homosexual lover of Akhenaten. That is possible, but unlikely on the current evidence. Firstly, the title Beloved of shows up a lot in Akhenaten's reign. It's associated with the king's wives, his daughters, the Aten, other gods, and even with various officials. Unless Akhenaten was sleeping with everyone, again, possible but unlikely, the title Beloved of doesn't imply a lover in the physical sense. The second problem is that Smenkare is not the only person at Amana to use the throne name Ankh-Keperure. Another person, a few years later, shows up with the same name, which is terribly confusing and we'll deal with that individual another time. Long story short, the idea of Smenkare being Akhenaten's special lover is unlikely on the current evidence. A shame, that would have been an interesting development. For now, let's move on. Around year 13, maybe later, Akhenaten appointed Smenkare as a new co-ruler. We know almost nothing about this man, where he came from, or what his role was. All we can say is that the young man married Merit Aten, who might have been his niece, and the pair began to rule as co-regents for Akhenaten and Nefertiti. Again, maybe. All of this is tentative it could change at any time. After receiving his crown, Smenkare chose the throne name Ankh-Keperu-Re, or Living Other Forms of Re. His new wife was the Hemet nesut weret a title that she would bear for the rest of her life. The couple probably lived in Aket-Aten, at least some of the time. Merit-Aten's name, and her title Great Royal Wife, show up at monuments like the Maru-Aten and the North Palace, which we visited in the last episode. These structures may have been the couple's residence, their own home, separate from Akhenaten's. Smenkare also owned agricultural estates in other parts of the country. These produced items like wine, and the wine labels have shown up at archaeological sites. Texts associated with the estate of Smenkare suggest that the new king had a reasonably prosperous vineyard somewhere in the country. Apart from that, we only see Smenkare on one single monument. At the city of Aket-Aten, Amana, 
A large hall filled with columns is attached to the southern end of the great palace. The name of this building was apparently Ankh Keparure in the House of Rejoicing of the Aten. This is often referred to as the Coronation Hall of Smenkkare, but we actually have no idea what the purpose of this building was. The roof of the hall was decorated with grapes, leaves, and faience tiles, so it was clearly a beautiful space, one worthy of the young king. That's really about it. To commemorate Smenkare, we only have an artistic scene, some wine labels, and maybe a hall commissioned in his honour. There are a couple more objects which we will cover down the line, but for now, this is all we know of Akhenaten's mysterious co-ruler. A young man, appearing from nowhere, Smenkare showed up in great style, but left very little to record his history. Not much to show for one of the most powerful people in Egypt. Regnal years 12 and 13 saw major changes in the royal family. At least two deaths, one after another, struck the household. And in a matter of months, Akhenaten had lost his mother and a daughter. The pharaoh and Queen Nefertiti were left in mourning, and they also had to deal with the possibility that more deaths would follow. Soon after T and Meket Aten passed to the west, the mysterious figure of Smenkkare appears in the historical record. He was married to Merit Aten, eldest daughter of the pharaoh, who may have been about 10 or 12 years old. The new couple became co-rulers alongside Akhenaten and Nefertiti and for the next year or two, they would act as guardians of the royal household. Luxury and power were theirs. Sadly, though, it was not going to last. Thank you for listening to the History of Egypt podcast. This was episode 127, Two Funerals and a Wedding, part 2. Originally a much longer episode connected to 126, the story ultimately divided more comfortably into two separate chapters. Now we are back on track and can move forward to the next step. The next episode will be number 127b, in which we dive a bit deeper into the mysterious tomb known as KV-55. Originally discovered as a burial place for Queen T, the KV-55 crypt in the Valley of the Kings also held another royal body. The mummy in KV-55 is probably the most studied, speculated, and debated figure in the entire 18th dynasty. So, let's dig into that. The discovery of the tomb, the identity of its occupant, and how a ragged pile of bones fits into the history of the Amarna period. That is episode 127b, releasing very soon. Oh, and one more thing. As I mentioned earlier, the chronology of these events is totally obscure. We do not know exactly when Smenkare showed up. 
I've followed the chronology of Professor Aidan Dodson, who was the most recent commentator to examine this material in detail. But Dodson also acknowledges the difficulty of reconstructing these events. Did Smenkare rule alongside Akhenaten, or did he follow him? We simply cannot be sure. For now, I've maintained Dodson's chronology, but there is every possibility that new research in future will change the situation entirely. If it does, I'll be very happy, and I can update this episode accordingly. For now, we will have to make do. This episode was brought to you by Christina, Christopher, and Linda, who generously donated to the show via PayPal. Thank you for your support, folks. You help maintain the supply of food and coffee, which allows the research to flow. I am very grateful. What did it take to survive an ancient siege? Why was the cult of Dionysus behind so many slave revolts in ancient Rome? What's the tragic history and mythology behind Japan's most haunted ancient forest? We're Jen. And Jenny. From Ancient History Fangirl. Join us to explore ancient history and mythology from a fun, sometimes tipsy perspective. Find us at ancienthistoryfangirl.com or wherever you get your podcasts.